Welcome to the OA Light a, Me Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Diana. first in-person meeting I've been to in almost two years and it's feels good <laughs> feels good and it feels different uh, I'm Diana I'm a compulsive overeater and a restrictor Hi, Diana. it's the first time I've heard a group of people say my name back to me uh, and there's a lot of power in that and in the beginning of the program when I first came in hearing my name was even difficult because it was more visibility than I wanted. Just to hear my name was too much uh, to be seen that much by other people. And now I keep coming back so I get to hear people say my name to me as the person I am now. So I'll talk about what it was like and then I'll talk about how I worked the steps and, and what life is like now how it was. I was a person who came into program on my knees. I was one of the desperate ones. I was in the food. I was ashamed. I was sad. I was depressed and I knew I had a problem. I had been in eating disorder recovery for about 15 years, uh, but I had never been in a 12-step program. So I thought I knew everything about my disease because all of the recovery that I had gotten in my life had come from a clinical setting and I had relapsed many times. And I thought I knew all the ins and outs uh, and I thought I knew everything about their, that there was to know about myself as well. So when I came in, I was in a full blown relapse and everything that I knew how to do to manage that was no longer working. I could not just get back on a food plan. I could not just pump myself up with a little more exercise. I could not uh, meet friends and feel better. I didn't want to leave my house. I was buried in my compulsive behaviors. And by that point in my recovery, I wasn't binging and starving anymore, although I certainly did that throughout my life. At that point, I was doing other things that were compulsive, like I was restricting my food intake, sometimes unknowingly, because I had no clue what a portion size was anymore. I'd completely lost track of what a serving size was. And so I assumed that every serving was too big. And sometimes I restricted unknowingly and knowingly. I skipped meals all the time. The biggest problem was the first meal of the day. I refused to eat breakfast. I thought if I didn't eat it, I was winning. I was getting ahead. And what I was really doing was eating a really weird lunch at 11 o'clock. That's what skipping breakfast does. And I refused to eat three meals a day because I thought for sure I would gain twice my size. And that is not what happened. <laughs> but it took me a while to let go of the death grip I had on what I thought was the solution. I was having a hard time not eating in between locations, meaning I would go somewhere, maybe I'd go to the library to pick up a book. I would have to stop somewhere in the middle before I got home to pick up something to soothe myself 
in the car on the way. Then I would forget that I had eaten that thing and proceed with the rest of whatever meal I was going to have for dinner. And then I would feel ashamed because I had forgotten about the thing that I ate when I wasn't paying attention and wasn't present in the car. I had gotten in very small fender benders when I was eating in the car. That happened all the time throughout my 20s and 30s. Um, I would cut food groups, entire food groups, and then I'd add them back in. Uh, but I never thought I was dieting because I never went on a commercial diet. I was just doing it myself. I was making up rules. I had a lot of value judgments about which foods were okay and which ones weren't. I didn't know that orthorexia was also a form of disordered and compulsive eating, which I learned in here. Um, I spent a lot of money on my appearance. I delayed meals all the time. One of the biggest culprits in me, or at least one of the biggest parts of my learning curve in how to eat three meals a day was to eat when I was hungry, not when I was overly hungry. And I, it took me some time to learn how to do that. And I had to work with outside help to do that. Um, you know, I limited my social activities. I didn't want to go on vacation because I didn't want to be seen in a bathing suit like people were waiting for my grand reveal on the beach. I was very concerned about other people's perception of me while they are obsessing about themselves. And I mean, I thought the only way to stop a behavior was to be rigid about it. I didn't know that there was another way to stop doing something. And uh, I really hated if I got rigid, I thought I was doing well, and I really hated when somebody interrupted my routine with their humanity, <laughs> like a phone call or a need. Um, so that tells you a little bit about what it was like. My behaviors ran the whole spectrum of compulsive eating behaviors. And I also had compulsive exercise behaviors as well because I thought the only way to manage my intake was to manage my output. And what I was doing with my output was all over the place. And I pushed myself to physical limits. And I used uh, some exercises as spaces of discipline and punishment. And all that did was have me develop a resentment. It got me fatigued and tired. It made me injury prone. And it created a real cycle where I was stuck in a loop of dysfunctional thinking about food. So. When I, was, uh, when I was younger, there wasn't that much stability in the household. And so there was not a feeling of safety. And I think that's where my compulsive behaviors came from. I overate and I restricted because I didn't feel safe. And I needed to control my environment. And the only way to do that was to control what was coming in. And so my answer to control what was coming in was to not let anything in. And I went to... Um, I had a single mother for, for part of my childhood, and I went to a school that had before and after care because my mom was a nurse and she worked really long shifts. And they fed us at the school, and I did not like what they fed us at the school, and I would lie all the time about whether or not I had eaten or wanted to eat. And so my first food memories are about restricting my food intake. I don't want that. I don't like the way it feels, I don't want it. So food very early on became a way of managing my discomfort in the world. That's what it's about for me. And you know, I was always very focused on food and interested in food as well. I think when I was 11 or 12, someone asked me what I wanted for a holiday gift and I said, pepperoni. <laughs> I got it. I got the pepperoni and I ate it in the sleeve 
in my hand. I was excited about it. It provided some kind of sensation for me, something to look forward to. And I remember that uh, my family was giving my grandfather a, a gift for his birthday, and my grandfather liked really nice chocolates. And I remember being in the basement and spotting the thing that we were going to give him, and I slipped my little fingers into the package and thought that I could like just get a couple out, but I kept going back. And I don't know how many how long that package was in the basement, but it was at least a week, and I kept dipping in to the point where then there was about half left, and my mother found it. And then I was very embarrassed, thinking that I was stealthily shaking it up to try to disguise all of the candies that I had taken out of that package. And that set up a pattern that, that lasted for a really long time, trying to make up for things, trying to compensate for things. And all of that was dishonest. All of it was a covering up of who I really was and what I was really going through. And the simplest way to express that was to say that I was having a lot of needs and they were not being met. And as a child, I couldn't articulate what all those needs were, but the people who had given me life and were charged with my care, they didn't know what they were either. So I think everybody was lost. And I developed this way of eating and being in the world that helped keep me alive for a long time. So when I came in the rooms, I came in with all this history and knowledge about the kind of disease I had. And when I came in, I was angry, and I didn't understand what anyone was talking about, and I didn't know what spiritual solution meant, and I did not want to hear the word God. I absolutely did not want to hear it. But I was so desperate that I kept coming to the meetings. And I knew that I needed to be in a group setting because I had recovered in a group setting before. So I knew that was right. And I kept listening. And I kept hearing things that were enough to keep me coming back. And I remember calling a fellow early in the process saying, you know, I don't know if I agree with all of this. And she said, well, you don't have to. You don't have to agree. Just lean into what's similar. Lean into the sameness for now and don't worry about the rest. So that's what I did. Uh, I had to put, get a sponsor on my calendar because I was so afraid of asking for help from anybody that I delayed my own working the steps, not for very long, but I was scared to ask. And so I put it on my calendar and I asked a woman in the room who had called on me to speak and I was scared and, and she was an old timer. She'd been in the program a long time and she was in multiple programs and she made me call her on her landline. And she gave me the questions one at a time. And this was annoying, <laughs> but it was the only way I learned how to pick up the phone. Because if I wanted another question, I had to call, which means I had to admit that I still needed help after I finished the next question. And that's how I got through my first three steps, slowly and stubbornly, but I did it. And I knew that when I was working with that sponsor, I didn't connect with her on a whole bunch of other levels. But it didn't matter because I needed help and I needed to start somewhere. So I started working the steps. Step one, I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. I had a really hard time with that language. Powerless? What do you mean I'm powerless? I'm not powerless. What does that mean? And my life is unmanageable. Unfortunately, it's very manageable. That's why I still have this disease. But my understanding of powerlessness has changed a lot. Powerless doesn't mean helpless. Powerless doesn't mean I'm, I'm not responsible. I am responsible for what I eat, what I choose to eat. Um, and I'm not helpless. There is help out there if I'm willing to ask for it. 
but my relationship with food and the hold that it has on me is much more powerful than me. It's bigger than me. And it turns out that a lot of other things are also bigger than me that I learned in this program. I had to admit that the most, the most basic need, eating, I could not do on my own. And that's a real slap in the face if you've lived an adult life and you count on your accomplishments to hold you up every day. And then you look at the most simple basic function that we have that we're supposed to be born knowing how to do and I can't do it. Not without help, I can't do it. I couldn't eat when I was hungry and stop when I was full on my own. I needed help with that. So I got outside help immediately, and what that did was very helpful because it allowed me to outsource a lot of the details and concerns about the food itself to someone who could help me do that, and it allowed me to focus on the step work and the spiritual solution in the program. I had to let go of a lot of judgments about food because I had so many false beliefs. I was afraid of eating potatoes. I was afraid of eating this. I had all sorts of ideas in my head from various places in my life that I had picked up and was carrying around with me. Turns out, None of that was true, and I had an expert whom I trusted to tell me that it was okay to eat potatoes, and it was okay to eat that, and, it, and that really was a good approach for me. And that person also helped me get my hunger cues back, because I didn't know when I was hungry and when I was full. After I spent so many years overriding the signals that my body was telling me, I couldn't trust anything that my body was telling me, least of all hunger and fullness. And I had to practice to get better at that when I was hungry and when I was full, and now I can do that. So I took the second step, which is a leap of faith, you know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, came to believe. That means that it's a process. I didn't wake up one day and suddenly believe something different than I believed the day before. I came around to the idea that maybe <laughs> something could be different. And that's as much as I needed to know to get through the second step. Do you believe that perhaps maybe something could be different? It's just cracking the door open a little bit. I don't have to know what the thing is yet. And, you know, in the first three steps, I still don't really know what's going on. I'm, I have a functional abstinence, but it's sort of moving around. I've got one do not eat list after another, which is not an abstinence, but I'm so new, I don't really know that, and I have a sponsor who's not talking to me about food. So I sort of hobbled along with my abstinence for a little bit before I understood what was going on in the program and, and had enough time to listen to how other people managed their abstinence and how flexible it could be for me. And it was okay to take some time to learn what abstinence might give me the most amount of freedom in my life, because that's what the abstinence is for. It wasn't to restrict me or control me. It was to allow me to be in the world as a sane person. So in step three, I had to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to this thing that had no name, that I could not see, that was partly a product of my imagination. And that's a great leap of faith because I came in with a lot of baggage about uh, that word God and what it meant. But what this program did for me is probably the best thing it did for me, which was to give me a new opportunity to develop a relationship with something called God and for that to be completely unique and personal to me. And I did that. And then I thought, well, I have tried everything else. Why don't I try this and just let it continue to develop as I go? And that's what happened. And by that point, I, I kind of had a sense that I might need something different in a sponsor. And I had heard somebody on this podcast 
that made a lot of sense to me. And she happened to be in one of my meetings. I found her and I asked her to be my sponsor and she's still my sponsor today. So that was the beginning of me learning to trust my intuition again. I knew I needed something else and that I was gonna have to ask for help again. And it's been a great experience. You know, those first three steps are the building blocks of my spiritual life, honesty, hope, faith, those three things. Without those three things, I cannot live. And my higher power is something that evolves for me. You know, I needed a higher power that walked next to me. Um, I needed a power that wasn't positioned so far above me that I couldn't reach it. I needed a partnership. So when I say the third step prayer, I don't say thy, I say you. And what that does is it pulls that power right next to me instead of me having an association with a different way of, of bowing and kneeling to something that's bigger and more patriarchal, which wasn't serving me in my life. And I don't ask anybody else to say the prayer that way. I just say it that way to myself because that's how I can most quickly engage with it. And that's an example of how flexible the program is, is that these tools already exist, and I'm allowed to find the best way to engage with them as I go. Step four, I did a thorough and fearless moral inventory of myself. It was like a highlight reel of everything that was terrible that ever happened. <laughs> but what I'd never done before was look at my part in it. I had no idea how I was contributing to my own suffering. The thought had never really occurred to me. And I had been in a lot of outside help, probably 18 years worth of outside help, which is enough to completely rebuild a person. And all that talking got me really good at identifying my feelings and explaining what was going on with me, but it didn't change the behavior one bit. I can't talk my way out. I can't know my way out. I can't smart my way out of my own pain. I've got to act my way out. I have to take a different action. And then the action is what helps me change my thinking. And you know, the fourth step is also the beginning of being honest with another person about stuff that feels really shameful. And my sponsor said to me, your first three resentments are the exact same as my first three resentments. And I knew I had the right person. So when I started turning them over in step five, that's really what they say in the big book is the beginning of coming out of isolation sharing these things and letting them land and letting them be painful and letting myself be seen vulnerable in front of people, which I never, ever wanted to do because it didn't feel safe. And then I had my spiritual awakening in step six. That's where it happened for me is um, when I looked at all the defects and had to write about what they were doing for me and what they were doing to me, I saw all the real reasons I was eating. I learned that the most stubborn defects that I have are pride, fear, and expectations. They're like my greatest hits. They play on a heavy loop over and over. They're the stickiest ones. And uh, I had a spiritual awakening because I understood what willingness was for the first time. I, I was on my sixth step in the middle of a very big work project and I was terrified. I was really putting myself out in the world in a way I hadn't before and I was so scared. I was on my knees and it was the first time I had gotten on my knees to pray since I had been a child. That's how scared I was. And you know, I called my sponsor at five in the morning once. I mean, I, I didn't do that stuff very often, but I was so desperate, I was willing to pick up the phone and she happened to be on the East Coast at the time, so it worked out fine. 
but she said, I'm really glad you called. That was her response to my emergency. And I don't think I'd ever had a person respond that way to a need. So that was really the first experience I had of, of starting to relinquish control and saying everything that is difficult right now is so big, I don't have a choice but to go to my higher power with it. It's the only place I can go. And then I started to understand that my higher power was, in fact, a very practical thing. It's not, it doesn't count as a tool in the program, but the, the point of being in the program is to develop this relationship. And what I saw was that believing in it was not very risky. It wasn't nearly as risky as all the other things I was trying to do with my food and all the other things I was trying to do to manage my life. So I put this alarm on my phone that would go off three times a day. I called it the God alarm. And I was driving around in my car or at work or whatever, and it would just go off like it was an alarm for anything. But that was my cue to think about my higher power because I would forget, oh, yeah, there was this thing I could tap into. I could say, oh, yeah, but I'm okay because there's a higher power that's got my back. And that really worked. It helped me get practice at connecting, even though I didn't know exactly what I was connecting with. And so the next step is really where I see a lot of transformation because step seven is all about humility. We humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Who else is gonna remove them? Not me. I couldn't do any, I couldn't achieve my way out of it. I tried. I went to grad school a couple times. I relapsed both times I was in. I thought that the routine and the achievements would help push me out of feeling disappointed, and they didn't. I got right back in the hole, and so I had to ask my higher power to change me, to transform me, and four, five, six, and seven is where the transformation really happens in the step work because all the questions are being asked and I'm developing courage, and I'm developing integrity, and I'm developing willingness, and I'm developing humility. And once I had humility, I had a taste of what a much bigger life I could have if I was in the right relationship to all the other aspects of myself. And I learned that, you know, my ego is not a bad thing. It just needs to sit in the trunk instead of the driver's seat. That's all, it can be there, it just can't drive. And then eight and nine are a special experience because they increase connection. I had to make a list of the living, direct, and self-amends I was gonna make, and I had a lot of self-amends. One of my self-amends was that I was not gonna use my body as an excuse for why I couldn't do something. That's an amends I get to live in. I couldn't use it as an excuse for why I didn't have the job I didn't have, or the relationship, or the places that I wanted to go. And then in step nine, I got to have a couple experiences that were really important to my growth as a person. Uh, you know, I wrote some checks for the food I stole, sure. Those things were easy to do at that point, but I had to have a couple conversations where I stopped blaming certain people in my family for the fact that I have a disease because it could have gone another way, it just went this way. And for the first time in my life, I had a pleasant visit with my mother who had come to visit me somewhere abroad when I was working. And if I had not made that amends to her, I would not have had that experience. 
and that is very powerful. And that's, uh, I mean, that, by the time I got to that step, I was not dreading it because I had developed enough humility in step seven to be able to have that conversation. And that's why the steps are ordered the way they are for that slow unfolding. Because in this program, I have never once been asked to do something before I was ready to do it. Thank you. And then in step 10, now, you know, steps 10, 11, and 12 are maintenance steps. You know, step 10, I... I customized my own questions for step 10 over time. Things that were very specific to me that I needed to keep track of every day and this is what the questions are. Do you have a resentment? Do you owe any amends? What are you grateful for? Have you seen how you are like other people today? Where is their resistance? Where is there an opportunity to trust? Is there any spiritual action you need to take? Did you do the dishes? Mm -hmm. And I do that because my dishes are a form of avoidance. And anytime I've got dishes stacked up, I'm avoiding something. That's how I know. And what that does is just helps me stay connected to the person I need to be every day. Uh, and then in step 11, you know, I have a much more developed uh, prayer and meditation practice than I used to have. Uh, I was meditating before I came into program, but now I use it to access my higher power. And now my prayers have really changed too, which is a great way to, to measure progress is how your prayers change over time. I'm not asking for things as much as I'm asking to be shown direction and guidance for what to do next. It's a much more open posture to receive information from. You know, and I carry the message in step 12. I have sponsees, I do service. Service is inconvenient, that's why it works. And I have found that the more I struggle in my program, the more service I need. Um, if I need help with food, if I need out of the food because I'm back in it, I, I need to pick up some service to get me out. Um, and so the tools, I just want to talk briefly about the tools before I end because the tools all remove barriers to God. That's what they do. They don't prevent you from eating. They increase connection. And... The plan of eating for me is really the bedrock of the, of the abstinence. It's more important than the abstinence because if I'm not well fed, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I can't be discerning if I'm not nourished. And a lot of what was going on with my food behaviors was an absolute refusal to nourish myself properly and, and a lack of understanding of how to do it. But once I did that and I learned how to eat properly, then I could discern whether or not I was picking up because I was hungry or I was picking up because I was anxious. And that last part of the serenity prayer, the wisdom to know the difference, is what that's all about. That's the most important part of that prayer. The discernment that gets developed over time by getting into a different relationship with myself. I know what to pay attention to. I know what I care about and what I don't. I know how to divest from things that do not have a long-term long impact on my life, like other people's perceptions of my body. That does not have a long-term impact on my life. But I didn't grow up knowing that. I had to learn that by focusing on other things and then allowing my brain and body to catch up to these new ideas. So now it's not about saying no to the food. It's about saying yes to the tools. And so if the food is getting bigger, then my program needs to get bigger than that. And now the barometer of my health and wellness is about the health of my relationships because if I'm out of the food but nobody wants to talk to me, I've still got a problem. And I think the longer I'm in recovery, that's the stuff that really matters is the quality of the relationships that I'm in.
that's how I know how recovered I am. And of course, I've been led into other programs because if you do a thorough four-step, you will see which other programs you need to be in because <laughs> it will show you exactly where the problems are. And I've gone to those rooms and they've done nothing but strengthen my connection to OA. So today, I no longer have a body project. I'm not working on anything. I'm not preparing for the life that I want to have when I look a certain way. I have very little body obsession. My purpose on this planet is not to be pleasing to the eye. I have something else to offer, but I didn't know what that was until I worked the steps and they pulled me closer to myself so I could see who I really could be. And it's really been a process about getting self-referenced, you know, instead of other referenced. It's not what's coming at me from outside. It's what's coming up from inside that tells me where I need to go. The stuff is always going to come at me from outside. I'm powerless over all those things. I'm powerless over all the people who still think the way I used to. I'm powerless over what my family thinks and does. I'm powerless over how irritable I am or discontent or restless I am. But that just tells me that I need more higher power in my life. I gotta, get, I gotta slow down and I have to connect. And I've been granted a, what I call the recovery pause. I get to pause before I answer questions, before I respond to emails, texts, phone calls. I don't have to rush my way into solving anything for anyone. In general, I'm a lot calmer and more serene and more at peace with the things that bother me in the world because there are some things that feel truly unacceptable, but this program tells me that I have to get into acceptance. And that's a shortcut to all the analysis and problem solving I used to do to figure out why things were the way they were. And I never came up with a good answer. But I can get into an acceptance position a lot faster than I used to be. And so, you know, today I don't force myself to exercise and I've got a lot less hypervigilance in my life. Um, and if I can let go of the hypervigilance over my food and my body, I can let go of it over my finances and my relationships and my career. So everything that I do in here has helped to bring my life into a bigger, more fulfilling place with a lot more potential for joy and abundance and experience. And you know, I can have bread in my house as long as I have God in my house. The issue for me is not the specific food. It's how much spiritual connection I have. I'm a compulsive eater because I operate on a spiritual deficit. I'm not connected and I don't feel safe. So I've got to work every day to make sure I get enough connection and enough safety. And I use this program as one of the tools that I use to do it. So I treat myself like a whole person today. I don't chop my body into parts and wish I could replace them with other parts. I'm a whole being. And I got to accept the whole thing if I want to be in this life. I'm grateful for the recovery that I have in the program. I am not cured. I am a compulsive overeater who struggles in this life and sometimes with the food too. But today the food is the least interesting problem I have. And I know that because I worked the steps and I got closer to myself and I get to be part of this incredible fellowship where so many people are working to better their own lives. Thanks for letting me share.
so much. Um, how long have you been abstinent? What is your abstinence? And how long did it take you to get abstinent? Okay, I have been... Uh, yeah, can you repeat the question? Sorry. The question was, how long have I been abstinent? What is my abstinence? And how long did it take me to get abstinent? I have been abstinent for almost four years. My abstinence is that I do not gift or reward myself with food. And I'll tell you how I arrived at that because it's very specific. By the time I came in the program, I wasn't binging and starving too much anymore. So what I came to understand is that my relationship with the emotional attachment to certain foods is what the issue was. It wasn't the foods themselves. And after going, I don't know, six months, seven months, trying to manage it on my own and making these lists, even to the point where my outside help was like, where did you get this list of things you're not supposed to put in your mouth or do? I mean, I had strange things on there. Like, you, know, you can't go into this store and that store, things like that. It's like over too much. I arrived at this idea because of my background. Food was a form of love that was not, which was given to me in the program because I had parents who couldn't love me the way I needed to be loved. They could not care and nurture me in the ways that I needed. And so food became a vehicle for delivering that emotion. So food was like this reward for me and it was like a gift for me and then I would gift and reward myself and then I would also do it to other people. And so I realized that if I wanted to change my relationship with the food, my emotional relationship with the food, I had to reframe from a compulsive behavior that put me in an emotional relationship with food. And that's how I arrived at that abstinence ever, I don't know, seven, eight months, something like that. And it served me well because it's loose and I wear it like a loose garment. I mean, how often do you have to gift people with food? This time of year, a lot. But it's more about the way I distribute my emotions to others and the way I take in emotion from other people. Because my whole mechanism is wrapped up with how I attach and separate from other people. That's what I use the food to manage. So I found an abstinence that was very specific to me and worked on the underlying causes of the compulsive eating and not the food items themselves. So it's focused more on the process and the relationship. Um, well,